0: We've
1: been trying to consider the kingdom of heaven together and I made a comment a little bit quicker than I would have preferred maybe last week about how much of Christianity does not view the kingdom of God as being at hand. They view it as a future kingdom that will be on the earth and I I think that's a, a statement that we need to focus on a little bit more for just a minute and expound on that. So that we can understand, first of all, that what John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, and then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, that the kingdom of God is at hand, we need to make sure that we understand that. But we also need to understand, I think, uh, some of the references where some people may may have some, some misunderstandings of the kingdom that is to come. So with that in mind, in Revelation chapter 20... And I certainly don't pretend to know everything about the book of Revelation, or certainly in Revelation chapter 20. I am a student, and I'm certainly not a master in this, but this is my current understanding, to the best of my knowledge, of what's being taught here in Revelation chapter 20. And begin reading in verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years it says in Revelation chapter 5 and in verse 10, that we shall be made kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So think about that phrase in relation to this. There in Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says that we shall be, or we're, we're made kings and priests, rather, and then we shall reign on the earth. Continuing to verse five, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death had no power, and they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, what we didn't read were the first three verses of Revelation chapter 20, where we have an angel with the key to the bottomless pit, and he lays hold on the dragon, which is Satan, and he binds him for a thousand years, and I think it's very important to understand that the thousand years of the binding of Satan is associated with the thousand years of the reign of the saints now in regards to the binding of Satan um, there's a lot that could be applied to this but I think specifically the this restriction of movement of Satan is specific to as it says in verse 3 set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more So Satan, uh, we see in Job chapter 1, he's going to and fro in the Old Testament, and he is deceiving these worldwide kingdoms that we see him having control of the Babylonian Empire and guiding these rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places and even being the power behind the scenes to a large degree of the Roman Empire. And now we're going to see from Daniel chapter 2 there's a kingdom that is took in priority and Satan does not have the liberty of movement that he used to have. He's been restricted and then now there will come a time later in verse 7 when the thousand years are expired Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And what does he immediately go and do when he's loosed? He goes in verse 8 to deceive the nations. Okay so he's limited in the sense that he is not Permitted, because the kingdom, this is the kingdom age, this is the church age. He's not permitted to go deceive the nations in the manner that he used to. But then, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he that letteth will let, when God removed that providential hedge, Satan goes back out, and what does he do? He deceives the nations again. Which which corresponds with the rising of the man of sin. And that's a lot more than, than what we're to, wanting to tackle today. But What's important to understand, though, is it's pretty much these passages right here that have been construed to teach that the kingdom is not now. The kingdom is in the future. Now, this thousand years, when we read the book of Revelation, it's a very figurative book that's teaching overall lessons in a very dramatic and figurative way. And... I I don't see any reason to indicate that this is a literal 1,000 years. It's very figurative. 1,000 is a very round, large number uh, used many different places in Scripture, which, by the way, um, it makes a lot of references uh, to the rise of the beast at the end of time. The beast represents this worldwide government in the past, and references that in Revelation chapter 17 five were, one is which is the Roman Empire this is in Revelation chapter 17 and then there's going to be one to come the, the seventh and then ten kingdoms are going to give power to this final manifestation of the beast which is the man of sin but um, this Thousand-year period I think one of the reasons why that's important is there's a lot of references in the book of Revelation To three and a half years to 42 months to 1260 days which are all talking about the exact same time period you also have references to three and a half years time Times and the dividing of times one plus two plus the half is three and a half Uh, so You have three and a half, references to three and a half years, in Daniel, which is speaking prophetically of much of these same things. But I think what's important about that, though, is you had a lot of references to three and a half years. And I want you to think, what is three and a half years? uh, If Satan is loose for a little season, it's three and a half years. What is three and a half years in relation to a thousand years? I think that's part of the, the point that he's making there is It really is a little season. I mean, three and a half years in relation to a thousand years is nothing. It's nothing. It's just a brief little blip on a timeline, you see. And there is a brief period before the second coming of the Lord where Satan is loosed. That is, again, consistently presented in this three and a half year period. But that's nothing in relation to the one thousand year reign of the kingdom of God and of the church of God. Now, uh, it became so popular within the last century in Christianity to teach that eternal salvation is gained by your own free will. You believe, you pray, you make a choice to be baptized, etc., etc. So there's an invitation that says you need to do something, and if you do something, you can gain eternal life. And that's the unfortunately false, another gospel that is so prevalent in Christianity today. Well, in association with that, what has become commonly taught in association with this free will, belief, you accept Christ, you, you uh, gain eternal life by that, is what's known as dispensationalism or pre-tribulation. And uh, we're going to have to kind of summarize this uh, for where we want to get to today. So this is probably a little bit more meat on this bone than we have time to consider. We can talk about this uh, at the lunch table sometime soon. But pre-tribulation all has to do in that mindset that there's this tribulation period at the end of time that is prior to the second coming of the Lord. And when do the elect leave or not in their mind be elect. When, when do the saved people leave the earth? Do they leave pre-tribulation, oh, sure. at a secret rapture? Do they leave post-tribulation? Or are they there the whole time? Then you have premillennialism and post-millennialism and amillennialism and all this other fun stuff. Uh, eschatology is the study of end times, and there's a whole lot of ideas on that. But the reason why this is important, though, is because The majority of Christianity believes in a secret rapture. First of all, that's where it starts, a secret rapture, which means that there's going to come a time where people are just going about their daily lives, and then all of the people that are truly saved are just going to vanish. They're just going to disappear. They're going to disappear. And this literally comes, it comes from a misinterpretation of a couple of different verses, but it literally primarily comes from a fictional book called "Left Behind" <laughs> that was then created into a movie in the early 2000s that was by the same title of "Left Behind." And it creates this idea that people are going to be going about their daily lives, and you're going to walk around thinking you're saved this whole time. and then all the real safe people are just going to vanish. and then that's when the tribulation period comes and the Antichrist rises and all this other stuff, and that is your period to now accept Christ. But if you don't accept Christ during this tribulation period, then you're going to go to hell. Uh, That's your last chance. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. And then, after this tribulation period, supposedly Jesus then comes back and sets up a earthly kingdom, and those that chose him, those that are saved, They uh, rule and reign with Christ on this earthly kingdom for a literal thousand years, and then after all of that, then we finally get to the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that all sounds very complicated, doesn't it? That all sounds very complicated. Um, And I would always be very wary if anyone tells you, well, you can't really understand anything about the second coming of the Lord unless you buy... Uh, nineteen ninety five chart and dVD mm-hmm. <laughs> that i 'm selling by the way uh, that you need this to understand uh, what 's going to happen this is the second coming of the Lord is the most important event mm-hmm. the most important event after his ascension mm-hmm. okay it's the most important event in the rest of the history of the world because it's going to end the history of the world <laughs> and do you think that he left his church in uh, uh, in a state of blindness for uh, 1,800 years uh, until some some man came along to write some chart so we can understand uh, what happens at, at the, the most important event in the, in the history of the world. Uh, and you can't understand it on your own. You have to read something that somebody else wrote, okay? But one of the most dangerous teachings about that is because... Every single reference to the kingdom of God is pretty much just skipped over. Why? Because the only reference to that is that God is going to set up a kingdom on earth after this tribulation period, and there's not going to be any troubles or trials in the midst of that kingdom period, because it's it's all going to be the saved people ruling and reigning with Christ on earth for a thousand years. And that is found nowhere in the Word of God, okay? other than a misinterpretation of quite a few different verses and especially in the book of Revelation you always interpret any verse that is very figurative or very symbolic or not clear in your mind you always interpret those verses through the lens of verses that are very direct and very clear and very succinct okay So what I mean by that is if it says that we're gonna reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years, but yet every other place in scripture, it says when Jesus comes back, he's coming one time without sin unto salvation, and he's gonna burn this earth up. Well, you can't reconcile those two, can you, right? So you interpret the figurative language and the symbolic language based on the clear language of the rest of the word of God. And I think that's one of the important principles that I think has been missed in trying to interpret that. So um, I want to hit these verses real quick to try to show you just the simplicity of the second coming of the Lord, the destruction of this earth, and then the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, there is a lot that the Bible teaches about this But you need to interpret every single verse that talks about the end times through these verses. And if you do, you're going to be in very safe ground, okay? In John chapter 5 and in verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. It's interesting there, it says, for the hour is coming, a couple of verses before that in verse 25, it says the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Well, that's talking about the new birth, okay? Now, when he's saying the hour is coming, does it take 60 minutes? <laughs> does it take God 60 minutes to born you again? Well, no, right? It doesn't take, take God 60 minutes to regenerate your soul. No, it's immediate. It's immediate, but he's saying there's a definite time period, okay? And in the same way, it does say hour right here. The hour is coming where there will be a resurrection, but in the same way that the new birth is not a literal 50 min, uh, a literal 60 minutes, he's saying that the moment is coming. And that's the language that we have in 1, Thess- uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, The last trump will sound, right? That's how quickly it's going to happen. But I want you to notice how, first of all, there is no secret coming of Jesus. You can't find anywhere in Scripture that the second coming of the Lord, or in their mind, the second, the third, or the fourth coming, which there's not a third or a fourth. There is one more coming of Jesus. But it says in Revelation chapter 1, Every eye shall see him, even they whom he has pier- who pierced Jesus. Well, how's the only way that those people that pierced Jesus are going to see him? Well, they're resurrected, right? So when he comes back, there is nothing secret about the second coming of the Lord, and they are all coming up together. See, that's another imper- important point about this uh, dispensational. Pre- pre-tribulation idea is that there is a significant time period between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust and typically they're going to be separated by a thousand years okay so you have the the uh, church being secret raptured up then you give people the, the the stragglers a chance to get saved and then when everybody that wants to accept Jesus does and they, they decide they want, now all of a sudden you have the resurrection of the just and they're living and reigning. But by the way, how, what, what does living and reigning on the earth mean if it's just all the elect there? I mean, what are you reigning over? At that point, the, the unjust haven't been resurrected yet. So then you get rid of the thousand years, you go live and reign on the earth for a thousand years and then it's after that moment that the resurrection of the unjust happens. So in that line of teaching, you have a separation of the, these two resurrections that are separated by a thousand years. Listen, everybody's coming up, of the, up from the grave at the same time, <laughs> okay? All that are in the grave shall hear his voice and they shall come forth. Now let's go to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We already referenced uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Write that down if you're taking notes. That at the last trump, in the twinkling of an eye, that's how fast it's going to happen. That's how fast we're going to be glorified. That Jesus will return, and, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, And then, now, why are the dead in Christ rising first? Well, they just need a six-foot head start, right? I mean, this doesn't mean that there's going to be the people coming out of the ground and they're just hovering there for like an hour or half a day or something. No, they just need a little bit of a head start. Why? Because they're six feet below the ground, okay? (laughs) But then when they catch up to us, when they catch up to us, we're all gonna be, those that are living are gonna be translated, we're gonna be glorified, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together, which by the way, that word caught up right there, uh, in the Greek that's harpazo, but in the Latin, that is where the word rapture comes from. So the idea of being caught up, okay, that's the Latin of that word right there. Now, we're all gonna be caught up, but it's not gonna be separate, and it sure enough ain't gonna be secret. (laughs) It's happening all at one time. To meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And notice the purpose of God giving us this knowledge. <laughs> the purpose of this knowledge. Is wherefore comfort one another with these words. I'll tell you this dispensational pre-trib secret rapture stuff has done nothing but terrify God's people. That there may come a time that all these real saved people disappear, and if you're still around, that means you weren't really saved. That means you never really truly accepted Christ. So therefore, you got to get right with the Lord, otherwise, and you got to get right with the Lord in this. Period of of horrible suffering, which, by the way, there's a lot. It appears, from my understanding of Scripture, there's a lot of very bad things that are going to happen both before the second coming of the Lord. Mm-hmm. But just about every every bit of it, particularly in the Book of Revelation, is poured out on the wicked. Mm-hmm. Now, that's more than we have time to bite off today. But just about every single bit of those judgments that we call the tribulation period. There's nothing in there that says that's going to be poured out on the church or on the kingdom. It's on the wicked, okay? But, boy, I tell you, there's going to be a lot of people that think that they're not going to be here during this time of suffering when the man of sin is revealed. It says that man's hearts are going to be failing them for fear. There's going to be a lot of people dropping dead heart attacks. I, mean, I don't think that's just figurative. I think there's going to be a lot of people dropping dead heart attacks because they've been told their whole life that I'm not going to be here for that. I'm not going to have to endure this final tribulation. And then they realize that that doesn't happen and there's going to be a lot of people that are terrified at the end of time because of this false teaching. But let's, let's not look at how that's going to happen at the, at the end of time. I want to talk about right here, right now. Uh, supposedly this secret rapture could happen at any time and people just vanish people just vanish and if I'm still here that means I wouldn't really save this whole time so you're making people think which is what honestly a lot of unfortunately um, it's hard for me to call them preachers of the gospel because gospel is good news and there ain't nothing good news about trying to make people doubt all the time are you really saved Are you really a child of God? I mean, I've heard multiple stories of people at some revival meeting and they are purposefully trying to make people doubt were you really sincere when you prayed that prayer? And if you weren't, you better come down and you better accept Christ. You better pray the prayer again because I'll tell you, you know, the whole, you have a, you have a car wreck going home and you, you weren't sincere, God's going to send you to hell. <laughs> now, is there anything comforting about the idea that, first of all, everybody could disappear and if I'm left, I'm not really saved at all? But furthermore, along that same line of teaching, that you may think you're saved today. You may think that you're living a good enough life but if you weren't really sincere, you may have actually missed the boat. And if you die, God's going to send you to hell. <laughs> there is no gospel in that message. There is no good news to God's people in that message, is it? And there sure enough in any, any good news for people doubting in their mind that maybe when the secret rapture happens, maybe I wouldn't save it all along. No, the plain teaching of Scripture is that the Lord is gonna come back the second time without sin unto salvation. At the last trump, there's gonna be one resurrection of every single person in the history of the world coming up at one time and those that are alive and remain, we're gonna be glorified and transfigured and when that happens, this world is gonna be burnt up. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth shall, uh, the earth also and the works therein shall be burnt up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heaven shall be on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back the second time. There is no purpose, there's no reason for Jesus to set his foot back on this sin-cursed earth to set up a reign for a thousand years. The only thing that he's got left for this earth when he comes back is to burn it up. That's it. (laughs) And then to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So there is a lot to be said about eschatology and the study of end times, but those simple verses right there give you just about everything you need to know about the second coming of the Lord, and that does provide comfort to us, doesn't it? The true message, the simplistic, I mean, i tell you, God, uh, I mean, uh, man and Satan always want to make things complicated, salvation, worship, everything. And no doubt they have made the, the second coming of the Lord the most complicated thing in the entire world. But this is simple. <laughs> the second coming of the Lord is simple. And there is, there's not going to be any, any earth to rain on for a thousand years because when Jesus comes back, he's going to burn it up. All right? Now, I want us to see that here in the kingdom of heaven, Here in the kingdom of God, we are in a position to rule and reign with Christ in this kingdom period, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of tribulation, and what at least in the the moment may feel like suffering, okay? We are joint heirs with Christ, which means we are joint heirs with the king of the kingdom right so we can rule and reign with Christ in this kingdom of heaven right here right now which i think is very important to understand because we can rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom regardless of what what is happening in the kingdoms of men and the governments of men here in this world even as we're going to see some promises to those that overcome in the letters to the seven churches of asia As they were being oppressed by the nations of men in a natural sense, they were ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom of heaven, even when the kingdoms of men were oppressing them, okay? Let's go to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, and here we have Nebuchadnezzar seeing this vision of an image that depicts these four worldwide kingdoms that were going to be coming, and the, the dragon we see this depicted in the book of Revelation, the dragon is trying to destroy God's people. He's trying to destroy the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and now the church. And part of who God or part of who Satan uses um, in his attacks against God's people are principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. So who are these worldwide kingdoms that Satan uses to oppress God's people? Well, he addresses them, first of all, in this image and in a couple other visions later on in the book of Daniel. The first one is the Babylonian Empire. It's led by Nebuchadnezzar. Then you have the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you have the Grecian Empire. And then you have the Roman Empire. All right? So these are the worldwide kingdoms. Remember, this is during a time period where Satan went out to deceive the nations. He went out to deceive the kingdoms and he was very successful. He was very successful. He deceived these worldwide leaders to oppress God's people. But, but there was a kingdom that was going to conquer and overcome and take precedence of these worldwide kingdoms. And that is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God, okay? Daniel chapter two. So he gives this image of uh, the, uh, the head of gold that is the Babylonian empire the breasts and the arms of silver, that is the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly and the thighs of brass, that is Alexander the Great and the Greeks and the Macedonians. And then the legs of iron, part of iron and part of clay, which is the Roman Empire. Okay. Verse 24, or <clears throat> excuse me, Daniel chapter 2 verse 34. Thou sawest till a stone that was cut out without hands... This is the rock of ages. This is Jesus Christ, okay? A stone that was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then was the iron and the clay and the brass and the silver and gold broken to pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away and that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, So this is a worldwide kingdom, but it's a worldwide spiritual kingdom, right? Because God has a people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. So now skip to verse 44. In the days of these kings, he just described in a little bit more depth, the Roman Empire. So in the days of the Roman Empire, which by the way, why was the language in the New Testament? I believe it's in Luke chapter 2 or 3 where it describes the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, one of the reasons why it's so specific is because of the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter nine. But it says, you can turn over there and read it, but in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, in the such and such year of this reign, when such and such was Tetrarch over this area, when such and such was, it gives you multiple historical references so you can know the exact year that John the Baptist ministry start And then he ultimately baptizes Jesus. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Why why was the Holy Spirit so precise to give you the exact year that that happened? Because there were some prophecies in the Old Testament that said in the days of these kings, in the days of the Roman Empire, what would happen? In the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It's not going to be, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. What happens in a worldwide kingdom? You live and you reign for about 30, 40 years. You die, and then either your son takes over or they have a coup and everybody tries to kill everybody and somebody else takes over. (laughs) So it's either going to be your son or it's going to be some military coup and someone else is going to try to take it. That's what happens in the kingdoms of men, right? The king dies. Eventually the king dies. But this kingdom's not going to be like the kingdoms of men. Right? Because we have an eternal king. It's not going to be left to other people. And it shall break in pieces and consume all these kings. that means why is it that there's not been another worldwide kingdom since the days of the Roman Empire? You don't think Hitler wanted to create a worldwide empire? You don't think the do you think the, the desires of the wicked men in this world have all of a sudden said, you know what, I'm content with having my little big lot right here? No. The wicked rulers of this world have always wanted to conquer the world. Why haven't they been able to do it since the days of the Roman Empire? Because the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Mm -hmm. And the only reason it's going to happen at the end of time when the man of sin consolidates power, the only reason that's going to happen at the end of time is because God allows it to happen. He that letteth will let. He even says there in Revelation chapter 17, the only reason why those 10 kingdoms give power to the man of sin at the end of time is because God put it in their heart to fulfill his will. The only reason that happens is because God suffers it to happen. So there will not be, until God suffers it to happen, there will not be another worldwide kingdom here in this world, and there's a reason for that. Because the kingdom of of heaven has taken precedent the kingdom of heaven is the most important kingdom in this world and boy i'll tell you if americans need to hear anything here in today's time it's that our primary allegiance is not to the red white and blue (laughs) our primary allegiance is not to the united states of america but we need to be good citizens if i get drafted You know, I'll go out, I'll take out a guy. I'll probably be killed pretty quick, but I'll do my duty to serve my country to the best of my ability. But my ultimate allegiance is not to the United States of America. My primary allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. It's to the kingdom of God. And it is to the ruler of that kingdom. My, My primary allegiance is not to the president of America. It's to the king of the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Shall consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God will stand forever. Verse forty five. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces. (laughs) That Jews, don't you know these Jews that were being persecuted, the converted Jews that were now Christians, they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and they read this when Nero was killing their family members, killing their Christian friends. Don't you know that they read this in Daniel chapter 2 and said, you know what, yes, Nero may be trying to take our natural life, but I'll tell you, the God of heaven is destroying and will destroy this wicked Roman Empire. Why? Because God said he was going to do it. (laughs) Don't you know those Jews, or all New Testament Christians really, that were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, don't you know they took a lot of comfort in knowing that this kingdom will be destroyed by the kingdom of heaven and by the king of kings and the Lord of lords? This kingdom broke in pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, and the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. Okay, so now in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man, came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. That is speaking of, from heaven's perspective, of the ascension of Jesus Christ back up to heaven because that's how he ascended, right? He ascended with clouds. He went up with clouds. So now Jesus Christ is coming up to the throne room of the ancient of days of God and, and what is going to happen when he ascended up back into heaven? He takes authority over his kingdom. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people and nations and languages should serve him. God has people out of every nation, kindred people and tongue, right? That kingdom was going to consume the whole world. So at the ascension of Jesus Christ, he now sits down at the right hand of God the Father, and what does he do? He takes the scepter of rule over that kingdom. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 12 to see the same picture. here. In Revelation chapter 12 we have the birth of Jesus Christ being presented in this figurative way of Israel which then kind of transforms the the, uh, bride of Christ in the Old Testament which is uh, the natural nation of Israel but then the vision kind of shifts a little bit to the bride of Christ which is the church in the New Testament who the Uh, the the dragon is not concerned with persecuting natural Jews he's concerned with persecuting the church okay but here Israel gives birth to a child this man child which is Jesus okay Revelation chapter 12 verse 2 she being with child cried travailed in birth and being pained to be delivered and there appeared another great wonder in heaven behold a great red dragon Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. We're told in verse 9 that is the great, great dragon is the old serpent, the devil, Satan. Okay, so that's Satan. And then his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, if you look through the Old Testament, Satan was trying to stamp out the lineage of the Jews throughout the entire Old Testament. Think about even all the way back to the fall in the garden. Don't you love that even when Satan tempted Adam to plunge us into total depravity and to sin in the garden, even in that moment, What did God tell Satan in the garden? He said that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Now, you're going to bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. So even when Satan was trying to destroy God's people and he, he deceived Adam and now the original sin has polluted all of mankind even in that moment, God reminds Satan of what's going to happen to him, first of all on the cross, but then finally at the end of time when he's casting the lake of fire, he said, I'm going to send, and what's important about that is it's not the seed of Adam, right? It's the seed of the woman because Jesus was born of a virgin. So then Satan, he, after the fall, He has this information that the seed of the woman is going to crush me. (laughs) So what does he try to do all throughout the Old Testament? He tries to stamp out all of the seed of that woman, right? He used Pharaoh in Egypt. Isn't it interesting, right, when uh, Pharaoh in Egypt was trying to kill all of the babies? He didn't just kill all the babies. Who did he kill? The male children. The male children right? Think about, I mean, you can go all throughout the Old Testament. Satan was trying to, to stamp out the lineage of the Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. And then maybe one of the most clear examples is Haman in the book of Esther, right? He was trying to kill all the Jews. And don't you love how God just overcome and overpowers Haman? And I don't need to kill Haman, but then he exalts Mordecai in the midst of that. But pharaoh haman and then particularly herod herod jesus is about to be born and herod goes and he was safely protected oh the irony uh, that uh, egypt is a picture of, of sin and wickedness and even of satan but uh, what's the place that god saw fit to hide and protect the man child after he was born where did he go to flee for safety In Egypt (laughs) he went to flee flee to Egypt to protect him but what happened in the middle of all that Herod killed all of the male children two years of age and under you see the dragon Satan has been trying to kill the seed of the woman ever since the garden but he especially tried to kill Jesus Christ the man child that was being born in first century Judea okay and that's what we really need to understand. There is always a sinister, wicked influence behind the flesh and blood that is persecuting us. Who carried this out? Pharaoh, Haman, culminating in Herod. These were physical men who did this, but who was behind all of it? Satan, the dragon, okay? Now, God over overcomes that, and what, what happens then? She brings forth, in verse 5, a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, okay? Jesus is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. What's that? That's the ascension, right? That's the ascension. Same thing we saw in Daniel chapter 7. That's the ascension. And what was given unto Jesus when he ascended back up into heaven? That rod of iron. That's from Psalm chapter two, by the way. We don't have time to go over there and and read that. But that reference is from Psalm chapter two that when Jesus went back up to heaven, now he's always been the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but he had a special authority that was given unto him when, when he ascended back up into heaven and it was the scepter of the kingdom of heaven. It was the rod of iron to rule all nations and to rule all men, okay? Now, um, Keep that thought in mind. Keep that thought in mind that Jesus has ascended back up into heaven. He is on the right hand of God. He has been given the rod of iron to rule his kingdom. And no doubt he's ruling and reigning in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand and, there, and that kingdom will, will stand until the second coming of the Lord, okay? Now, let's look at some of these promises in the book of Revelation. Revelation. To these churches that overcome, okay. Let's look first at Thyatira. Now, Thyatira, they had a wicked woman who's introduced here figuratively as Jezebel, and she was introducing false doctrine, false worship, uh, immorality, and fornication. And who was behind that? I mean, we don't have time to to really uh, look at look at all the problems of these seven churches, but even Ephesus. Ephesus had left her first love, right? Where did that come from? Why did they leave their first love? Because Satan was getting them distracted. Satan was persecuting the church at Smyrna of the synagogue of Satan, the church at Pergamos. Same thing, the church at Thyatira. You know, sometimes we think that Satan only persecute the, uh, persecutes the church by a governmental person saying, if you don't, uh, if you don't worship Uh, a false image or if you do worship uh, according to God's word that I'm going to throw you in prison sometimes we think the only persecution of Satan is being thrown in prison for worshiping God Satan was behind of all of this and by the way what's some of the most efficient ways because Satan is a very quick learner and he has seen the church thrive in persecution. He's seen it. He's seen the church thrive in persecution. So what's what's the most efficient, possibly, what's the most efficient device of Satan? It may not be governmental persecution. It may be false doctrine. It may be moral immorality, like this Jezebel. It may be getting them so distracted with the world or getting so distracted with Phariseism, like the church at Ephesus that was casting out false apostles, but they they'd lost sight of the king of the kingdom, right? they would lost sight of their first love. I'll tell you, Satan is wily and he's deceptive. And if you think the only attack of Satan is people being persecuted and thrown in prison for worshiping God, then you are not as knowledgeable of his devices as you need to be. And that makes you very susceptible. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think Satan's arguably most efficient deception nowadays has been false doctrine. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the effect of false doctrine. Just in the simple example, the small little sliver that we're talking about today, look at God's children that are under bondage by him simply confusing all of this, this end times teaching that has taken away the comfort of God's people. How did he do all that? By false doctrine. By false teaching. Okay? So Jezebel here, Jezebel here, they're dealing with a person in their midst that's promoting false teaching, that's promoting false worship, immorality. And then you have this promise here, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 26. He that overcometh, okay? He that overcometh. You are dealing with chat, you're dealing with false doctrine in your church, and you need to deal with it. And if you do, to him that overcometh and keepeth my works until the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I requested of my father. Now, does that make any sense if it's a 1,000-year reign on the earth where there's not even any nations anymore? It's just all the elect all there together, just physically on the earth, ruling and reigning with Christ. These were Christians that were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and he's saying, Look, you can rule over them in the kingdom of heaven by being faithful unto me. Now, the church of Philadelphia, verse 12 of the third chapter Him that overcometh, if you overcome these challenges in the kingdom of heaven, if you, Him that I come, will come, I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the, city of the, uh, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. That's the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth and then lay out a Boy, don't you know, you don't talk about the devices of Satan being wily and deceptive. If, if false doctrine doesn't work, if if uh, moral immorality doesn't work, what is he th- what's he then going to persecute you with <laughs> with prosperity? And boy, was it not efficient. It was efficient in the church at Laodicea and it's certainly efficient here in America today. But for those that overcome, for those that overcome, this persecution of Satan, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me, in my throne, even as I also overcame and is sat down with my father in his throne. Isn't that a beautiful picture? To think about the fact, this, the, the intimacy of, think about a, a king, think about David when Solomon was born. You know, David was the king, but when Solomon was a little boy, he would bring Solomon up to his lap and he would sit on the lap of the king, and when he sat on the lap of the king, he had the full authority of the king, right? And that's essentially what God's saying right here, that if you serve me faithfully, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst, everyone else in the church at Laodicea, they are pursuing all the things of the world, but if you, verse 20, verse twenty, if you open the door to me, if you open the door of fellowship unto me, and you overcome, I'm going to bless you to rule with me in the kingdom of heaven i want to highlight a couple verses very quickly in matthew chapter five at the beginning of the sermon on the mount first of all what's the very first promise to god's people blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the way theirs is the kingdom of heaven Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then verse five, blessed are the meek and meekness goes right in line with being poor in spirit. Mm-hmm. Poor in spirit and meek. And what are the what are the meek gonna do? <laughs> For they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit it. Now, if you're meek, are you gonna gain a lot of deeds and property and acreage here in this world? Most likely not, right? Who is it that, that gains all of the the physical land and the acreage, well, it's probably going to be someone who's a little bit more aggressive, maybe even dishonest in business, right? You're not going to inherit acreage, <laughs> right? What are you going to inherit? Verse 10, blessed are they which persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where your inheritance is at. That's where you rule and reign with Christ. You can inherit the earth right here, right now in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 21, uh, verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, I really want to highlight verse five there. What are the meat going to do? They are going to inherit the earth. They're going to inherit the earth. Now, if Jesus is going to come back a second time and burn this earth earth up, that's not much of an inheritance for us, is it? Right? But if we have the opportunity here on earth in the kingdom of heaven to press into the kingdom and rule and reign with Christ, to sit up in the lap of the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his throne, and don't you know that he was able to just... I mean, think about John as he was penning the book of Revelation, sitting there alone on the island of Patmos, and he was a condemned criminal under the authority of the Roman Empire. But don't you know that as he was being ascended to these heavenly realms by these visions, don't you know that he felt like that truly I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, right? When he was lifted up to those heavenly places and he felt like that he was ruling and reigning with Christ as he was seeing these beautiful visions of God's sovereignty being unveiled in the book of Revelation, you see? That's the kind of blessings that we can have in the kingdom. But notice, it's not a 100% certainty that you're going to rule and reign with Christ, Who's the promise to? To them that overcome. To them that overcome. Now, how do we overcome? By the power of the Lamb, right? (laughs) John chapter 16 and verse 33. Be of good cheer. In this world, you shall have tribulation. Well, that's the story of the church, isn't it? That's the story of God's people. In this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. And because he's overcome the world... We can sit right there with him in his place of authority, right? In his place of power and authority. We can rule and reign with Christ here on earth, but it's not a thousand years after a secret rapture and all this other stuff. We rule and reign with Christ right here in the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that kingdom will stand until the second coming of the Lord.
0: We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.